0: That's why transparency is good, because people are skeptical, and you need to tell them the truth.
1: Welcome to The Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan.
2: Oliver, a very well welcome to The Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
2: You're the co-founder and former CEO at Carbon Delta, a leading environmental fintech and data analytics firm specializing in climate change scenario analysis. And before we dive into your startup and what you exactly do or did before you sold the company, we want to start with your personal background. You are an ETH alumni and your educational background is in computer science, but also in Mm -hmm. meteorology. Why combine the two? What did that bring of value to you to have a combination of both of them?
0: Well, when, when I studied computer science in Germany, um, there was an educational system where you had to have what was called a minor subject. So I was studying computer science, and after two years, they asked me to sign up for a second thing. And uh, so I was actually, the, the University of Bonn had a meteorology a program, And so I was riding my bike past this building that had all these, uh, you know, the uh, measurement devices that were measuring all sorts of, you know, weather phenomena on it. And I thought it was really um, interesting, super interesting. I I was more interested in the in the technology and the building than, you know, in the weather per se. Like, you know, some people that do paragliding or something like that, they're like really interested in the weather. And then to my big surprise, I was at that university, and it's, it's a big university, the, actually the first student um, to have that combination. And I then met a second student, and we actually ended up working together, and she had meteorology as a major and computer science as a minor. And we had a really great time um, because we felt like we were, you know, sort of this little team. Um, and the most surprising thing about this is that, uh, you know, when you look back into the history of computer science, then, um, you know, you come across this uh, German scientist, um, Neumann, and uh, he actually, the reason for building computers was to assess whether it would be possible to pre-compute the weather. So it's one of the first applications for computers. Now, the other funny thing is that weather forecasting programs, they're very complex um, uh, programs. And I, I think everybody can imagine that because you're solving very very complicated mathematical equations. You have a lot of physical processes that you need to model. There's a lot of input output you know operation going on, and mostly they're running on parallel computers and they're complicated computers. So, um, but most weather so most weather forecasting programs are very old, and they're written in Fortran, a programming language that nobody today you know normally learns or knows Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, it was invented when I was born in the 70s. So that was, um, and leading to Carbon Delta, that was part of the reason I um, ended up going away from meteorology, because as a computer scientist, to be quite honest, one of the biggest drivers from moving away from, you know, working for weather services was that I just couldn't deal with programming in Fortran anymore. You know, I, was, I had learned Python um, and at the time it was new. I, like many others, felt like this was the actual future of programming. And uh, yeah, so, you know, when I got the opportunity, I um, switched from weather forecasting into the financial industry. And that was actually the, the actual interesting combination knowing a little bit about uh, atmospheric science and then the financial industry.
2: And that's exactly what you did. You became the IT head at FISH Asset Management. And there you actually uh, stayed for 10 years in total. So that's quite a long time. So what was so appealing to really stay there? And what did you actually do at FISH Management Asset Management?
0: Well, we were a team of about uh, 10, 15 uh, programmers and system engineers, and we built... The internal portfolio management system for Fish Asset Management. And that was super satisfying because it was like more of a build a job than a buy and run job. And that was extremely appealing because I guess in most large financial institutions, you don't get to write the actual portfolio management system, you get to install and run. Right. The system. Second of all, I mean, I was a really big fan of Fish Asset Management. And I would say that I've, you know, taken a number of business practices from that firm um, over to um, Carbon Delta. And it was a very interesting journey. Um, essentially, uh, Fish Asset Management was at the end of its startup life. We were. I was number seventeen uh, at uh, fish asset management. So we were quite small. When I left, we were like eighty-five. So I was able to see a company grow from, you know, sort of a family to more of a department, separated, um, you know, more centrally run firm.
2: Right. You mentioned the the practices that you learned there. Do you have anything to share there? what really stuck with you that helped you also along the way as an entrepreneur afterwards?
0: Well, uh, uh, there's a a fairly large number of things. Let me mention a few. One one is transparency. Mm -hmm. Transparency was, and I think still is, really big at fish asset management. And I think it's a business practice that is becoming more and more important. I guess most people know the uh, the story of Buffer, for example, in the U.S. where, you know, they're like super transparent. You could see, you know, almost live the, uh, the salary of everybody. Um, and there were a number of business practices I learned from my boss at the time. You know, may it be a technique like the Harvard technique for negotiation. Um, may it be some of the practices I learned from my um, IT uh, partner. Um, at the firm uh, regarding IT security and and running meetings um, I, it's, it's it's really a vast um, set and I I would say that overall I would have liked to go into the entrepreneurial space much earlier. Um, I was 40 and I had decided um, I, I wanted to do it now because I felt like I, w- if, I if I hadn't done it at that point in, in life, I would never do it. Uh, but on the other hand, I think my experience in business did help to run Carbon Delta. I would have run it very differently without that experience.
2: I can fully imagine. We'll talk about that in a second. But before we do so, I would like to bring back the transparency that you just mentioned. There are also well-known people like Ray Dalio, for example, from Bridgewater Associates, who also even wrote a book about the principles, and there he also preaches radical transparency within his firm. So I just wonder, why is transparency so important to build a firm, and what did it actually bring you? Or also ask differently, what does transparency actually mean to you in a business context?
0: One thing I understood, um, when I was taking this class on Harvard negotiation that I talked about earlier. In the very beginning, they played a little game, and the game was a prisoner's dilemma kind of game. And I'll tell you the story. I was thinking, it it all comes back to, you know, doing the smartest thing. So, uh, we were playing this game, and I was thinking, how can I... Influence the game in the best possible way. So I thought I have to do something extraordinary. So what I did was I stood up and I said, look, guys, this is a prisoner's dilemma type game. We're all best if we cooperate. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is I will always cooperate. I'm, I'm giving you my word for it. Until the end of the game, 12 rounds, I'm going to cooperate. And I would like all of you to do the same thing. And after three or four rounds of cooperation, we will all know that we're all cooperating and will be really, really extraordinary. And it worked well for three rounds. And on the fourth round, somebody started not cooperating. And it just killed me. I was like thinking, how's this possible? And I thought about this for a long time. And I came to the conclusion, It's natural for people to be skeptical. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. And that goes back to the transparency. If you're not transparent, people are naturally going to be skeptical. And the fantasy that they have is much worse than the reality. So let's, you know, put it back to, uh, let's say salaries... Maybe somebody sees I'm earning less than someone else and I think I should earn more. That's, that's probably a hurtful feeling. But the feeling, I don't know what somebody else is making and that person might make a lot more than I'm doing, that's even worse. So that's why transparency is good because people are skeptical and you need to tell them the truth.
2: So in that regard, we say no matter what company you will be involved in, transparency would always be one of the core values in that regard.
0: Absolutely. There is no other way to do business. Absolutely.
2: I really like that. And I think that's an important discussion that many startups also here in Switzerland probably just take up way too late down the road. So they don't really define or talk about the core values early on and just miss it. And then you do have a certain culture, but it's not really formulated or well-defined, and then later down the road, you start talking about it, and then you just realize, oh, that's probably how our values look like.
0: Well, to be honest, I think maybe building on what you said, I think what actually we should have is more of a standard set of values that are, you know, best practices that, you know, lead to good business outcomes. I don't think transparency needs to be discussed, in my view. Okay. I think it should be assumed. Maybe uh, maybe it should just be, you know, agreed upon in the very beginning.
2: Got it. Are there any other core values that come to mind that are important to you?
0: I mean, I'm in the business of uh, sustainability. And in my view, I'm not going to do any other business than business that leads to sustainability. And... I see sustainability as a new element in the uh, having fun, uh, risk and return, Um, you know, those maybe very high-level objectives, because I think there are some planetary boundaries that, you know, we're embarking on that we cannot ignore. And the earlier we realize that, the better. Um, and I always say uh, climate change is a great example because our analysis um, shows that around 50% of the economy needs to decarbonize. That is maybe the biggest uh, societal transformation we've ever gone through. But at the same time, it's the biggest business opportunity so i like that convergence of that you need to do something but it's a great business opportunity at the same time
2: sounds like a great combination to to tackle basically and that's exactly what you did after staying 10 years at fish asset management in 2015 you decided to leave was it the idea of carbon delta that led you to leave the good company that you worked for
0: Yes, definitely.
2: And how did that happen? How did you come up with the idea and then decided, okay, now it's time to actually start my own company, Jump Ship? So a friend of mine called me and
0: told me, Oliver, uh, I'm really excited. I created a Wikipedia page for the carbon bubble. And, you know, I was uh, very hesitant to even consider looking at that. Because there are, you know, so many crazy ideas in the in the climate space, um, and I didn't know at the time how difficult it is to create a Wikipedia page, um, because it, most pages get deleted immediately right. because they're not deemed uh, relevant, which I think is a is a great quality um, filter. Um, but I looked at the page anyhow, and the carbon bubble is an economic theory um, that says the following. A bubble is a financial market's effect where um, a a part of the market, for example, all dot-com companies or mortgage loans or something, are overvalued because everybody's missing a certain piece of information. And the carbon bubble theory says that all oil, coal, and gas companies are totally overvalued, because they'll never be able to sell all that oil and coal and gas because of limits of global warming. So now we, we have a, a remaining budget of around 500 gigatons of CO2. Then we're hitting the two degree limit. Um, but if you look at the reserves that oil, coal and gas companies today have and convert that into CO2 equivalent, it's around 2,500 gigatons. So it's a factor of five. And that's why, you know, some economists are saying they're never going to be able to sell that. So, um, you know, share prices, for example, are uh, just basically imagining future profits. If those future profits are only one-fifth of um, what, you know, people are analyzing, then then they're overvalued. And I went to Fish Asset Management and asked some very uh, conservative people What do you think about that theory? And they said, that's interesting. And that was the second I decided somebody has to create a company that calculates this on a company level, on an issuer or security level, because that macro theory is of no use for a portfolio manager. The macro theory doesn't tell you, should I buy or sell this oil company?
2: Got it. And then how do you actually take this idea and actually build a company then? How what were the next steps that you tackled with your friend?
0: Well, I um I think that might have been I, I mean that was one of the mistakes I did at Carbon Delta. I asked a friend of mine, uh, who was a programmer, you know, if if I if I leave Fish, would you join me? And the guy said yes. And I was thinking, okay. I'm going to bootstrap the company by myself with this programming pal. And um, <clears throat> that was a huge illusion. Um, uh, I, I realized after a few months when I was you know, starting to be very, very tired and worn out that uh, two people is just not enough to start a company. Um, and so the problem at the time was that um, I had already, you know, set up the name. I was in the Climate Kick funding program. Um, I had built a website. I had started programming the first versions of the, you know, our computational system. So, I mean, there was a lot of bootstrapping going on already. I was thinking, I now need co-founders that, um, you know, I get along with um, that are looking for a job now, that are ready to work Um, for very little money, Um, and uh, they would have to now like my product and business idea. And I was taking it very technically, and I was sort of multiplying those uh, probabilities. I was thinking it's it's practically impossible. I was really thinking, after one person left me, that I had started collaborating with, I was really thinking this idea is dead. Wow. Uh, And... I don't know it's just I was I kept on you know looking for people and uh, I ended up you know getting to know David and Elke and it was just uh, a total dream team it it was really a fantastic team it it just worked like a charm and uh, I don't know how that happened but I think when you start a company, I think you need to know two things. First of all, everything's going to be very different to what you plan. And, you know, it's it's like a total roller coaster, right? One day somebody leaves you, you know, the next day a new client comes around the corner. So I think people should expect that a lot of doors will be, you know, shut and open at the same time. So you just have to be mentally ready for that. I think that's all.
2: Is there anything that can prepare you to become mentally ready for that roller coaster ride? Or is it just you have to experience it and get better the more often you basically expose yourself to that situation?
0: Well, I don't know. Uh, preparation. Uh, I think it's, I, I like the. Um, the way uh, you know our society sort of moves in Europe towards entrepreneurship. They value I think it's valued more and more, you know, when you risk and try something. And I think that's that's what it's all about. Um, I people tell me, you know people ask me, so you know what did you think about the climate kick um, program? And of course it was a great funding program and the funding was, was part of the help but especially in the first year the biggest help I got from climate cake was a community of people that were just excited about carbon delta although there was nothing you know they just liked the idea and I would meet them and they'd be you know I would look at smiling faces and they'd be like yes Oliver we think we think it's it's good it's a good thing that you're doing and that was so much more valuable to me than, uh, you know, anything else, because otherwise I would have just sat in my kitchen and would have had no no feedback on my right. my business idea.
2: Can you also give us a quick rundown of the different solutions that you actually offer with Carbon Delta? Because you have different potential clients that you serve, right?
0: Well, it's mostly what, you know, in the financial industry is called institutional investors, and it's just... You know any any institution or person that has money is usually an institutional investor. So you know we <clears throat> we we're looking at uh, pension funds or insurances, uh, banks, um, universities. You know in the U.S. Uh, you know you name it. The, these types of institutions that that invest those those were our clients. And basically our product was a. You know, a comprehensive, um, a computer program that would calculate the the climate change risk, you know, different aspects of it, in, uh, yeah, in in the system. And I think the you know to make it simple, I think traditionally people would calculate a score, like one being bad and five being good, or something like that. And what we did was um, similar, uh, but more interesting for investors, we would say minus 5% on the stock price or minus 50%. We would translate it into a dollar value. And I think that just made the big difference.
2: Right. In that regard, in your products DNA, you also focused on the climate value at risk approach instead of, for example, pure carbon footprinting. Can you explain the, the difference and why it made sense to have your focus in, in your product? So carbon footprinting
0: is looking at what impact would a portfolio have on the climate. And that, that's a very important environmental exercise. But you have to realize that a portfolio manager, imagine you're a portfolio manager and you're sitting in front of your you know, terminal today and you're wondering, you know, what are you wondering? You're wondering where are the markets going to go? What's going to happen with these assets? You know, they're doing that for somebody. You know, somebody's investing and the portfolio manager is trying to manage this. So the focus is on creating return. And I think in the, you know, sustainability space, people sort of are so um, uh, anti-capitalism, maybe sometimes, that they even think that creating return is a bad thing. So this whole view that a portfolio manager has a strong desire to create return, I think doesn't even occur to many environmentalists. But I was trained at fish asset management over 10 years that that's the objective. And I actually felt like it was a really good thing. It's a good thing to try to create return. And I was thinking, how can I help portfolio managers to create return? So I said, we need to turn this whole idea around. We need to look at what impact does climate change have onto the valuation of the portfolio. So it's not portfolio on climate, it's climate on portfolio. And this reversal of thinking, I think, was the key uh, success factor for this product,
2: climate value at risk. Got it. And talking about timing, when you actually launched Carbon Delta, there was already a, an American competitor in the market, MSCI. They were already active and also had clients. Why did you decide that it's still a good time to launch a company and probably you know, get into competition with them, potentially?
0: I, I didn't think about timing uh, that much. And probably if I would have had the idea three years earlier, five years earlier, I would have already done it. And ironically enough, one of the first things I did was I contacted MSCI and I told them about this idea. <laughs> and I, I sent them a short paper outlining the main idea and whether they would be interested in collaborating. But at the time it was, you know, when you send out a, a PDF with a few paragraphs of words. It doesn't look very shiny. It's just an idea. It doesn't... It's not very appealing. And, I mean, that's the beauty of... It's not like MSCI didn't understand, you know, where the market was going or what they needed. It's just natural that big companies are... It's more problematic in a big company to do something revolutionary than as a startup. Um, Because, obviously, you know... uh, a respected company like MSCI has high quality standards, you know, processes to check stuff, um, uh, IT requirements, things like that. As a startup, you know, you don't have that, and you have the freedom to just move ahead and move ahead, and and that was our advantage, and that was that. That's why startups can outperform, outrun even big corporates with a big. You know, money pocket. Um, that's that's how it is, and that, that's the game, and that's the beauty of it.
2: Did you ever get a response from MSCI up on your PDF?
0: A- a- MSCI t- outright declined. Okay. They and <clears throat> and uh, they were fairly aggressive about it. They said, um, you know, we they actually also declined giving me data. You know, because I was I had inquired either that they would, you know, that I could become a customer of MSCI or a corporation partner. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I have to admit that I was a little bit insulted at the time, you know, because I felt like, you know, why don't you want me as a customer, but they didn't want to create a competitor. I mean, that was, and, and I right. totally understand that.
2: And how do you then take it from there? I mean, that could also be been like a significant bet that you took and say, hey, I need this data or this partnership to actually execute it and and realize the idea that I had for Carbon Delta. And just when that doesn't go the way that you planned, you could also just say, doesn't work, I do something else.
0: I was totally determined to make it work, no matter what. So I uh, (laughs) I just, uh, over the last weekend, I sorted all the business cards I had collected over the four years of Carbon Delta, it's way over a thousand business cards. So I met over the course of four years more than a thousand people because I didn't collect business cards from all of them. Right. So you can imagine I met a new person in average. I met one new person every day. I mean, I was just killer determined To make anything work. And David and Elke were the same way. We were like. Almost literally running our heads. Through the wall. I mean David and I. When we came back from business trips. Sometimes. We were like. Close to a breakdown. Because we just totally. Like. Overdid it. Yeah. But it was great. (laughs)
1: Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit Swisspreneur. Again, that's newco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show.
2: I think it's beautiful if you can say that about that intense journey, but where did that determination come from? What was so motivating? What kept you going that you actually wanted to make it a success so hardy?
0: It's just the way I am.
2: <laughs> That's I think... a simple explanation.
0: I, yeah, I, th- I think it is like that. I mean, some people... You know, w- when I do stuff, I get... It's I, I observe myself. When I get into stuff, I get a little bit obsessed with it. For example, I'm a hobby guitar player. Really, I don't play guitar well at all. But over the last 12 months, I've probably watched 300 videos on music theory. I I, I just find it so interesting and fascinating... It's and, and I want to understand exactly, you know, what it I don't know why. It's that's
2: did you do any competitive sports when you were young where that comes from? Or is it just the pure desire for learning, growth, and progression progression, basically?
0: No, I did almost no sports when I was in uh but but maybe if I would have gotten into sports, maybe I, I would have become very competitive as well. I mean I, I could totally see that how That is, no, no, I was, um, really, I spent way too much time in front of my first computer. Um, I mean, literally, you know, for weeks, I would, uh, at the time when you had a home computer, um, you didn't have monitors, you would hook up a home computer to a TV. And the point is, the TV has a very low frequency for the, you know, image update. So it's very hurtful for eyes to look at a computer screen on a TV, like an old, old school TV. So, you know, I I frequently remember that I would go to bed at 2.30 in the morning because my eyes were hurting so much that I couldn't look at the screen anymore. And... I mean, I was writing very simple programs, but I think it helped me understand very early on how programming works.
2: Absolutely. Now, let's also look a bit at the obstacles that you faced when building Carbon Delta. There are always challenging uh, challenges when building a startup. One of the obstacles that you can face as a social impact startup is obviously that you are linked to doing good in the world, but at the same time, people often also say, you don't deliver enough for any return at all, you have a difficult business model, it's hard to make money as a social impact startup. How do you cope with that challenge? Because you seem to come from a very return-focused culture back from your asset management career.
0: Well, I I would say um, what, what I observe also with other people, I think the, the greatest influence um, to to start a sustainable business probably came from my mom who, you know, I think in the 80s started to think about these environmental issues very early on when, you know, something like sustainability wasn't a topic. So I was influenced very early on. And I, for example, I had decided, I don't know how, maybe I was 16 or something, I'd already decided that I would never own a car because it felt wrong to me to burn all this oil. It just felt wrong to me i didn 't even you know know about climate change at the time. I was just thinking that 's just wrong in principle to use up resources in that kind of way um, and uh, well then. Uh, so I think there are many, many people that feel like that as a consumer. So that's great. So when you start a company that is related to sustainability, you will not have any problems finding, you know, dedicated employees and, and co-workers. Um, on the other hand, I think the investor community is actually completely reversed. I think there's a general sentiment that still and that's you know that's my honest view nobody says that because it's not you know politically correct to say that but i think most people think that uh, if there's too much sustainability in the business it's not going to create return and i think that sentiment is still there and i think it's wrong and i you know i think it's wrong and wrong i think it's ethically wrong and it's also factually wrong
2: but why do you think, where does that come from? Why is that still a thing that we need to talk about today from an investor's perspective?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think it's... Uh, I have this kind of picture in my head of... I don't know. I would call it hardcore economics. You know, um, that maybe we we sort of think and breathe... Um, as a society, and and sustainability just isn't in there.
2: Because it's crazy. You are the perfect example that a sustainability startup can actually deliver great returns.
0: Well, uh, I think a, an investor would probably say, well, let's look at a range of climate change startups, right. and then look at, you know, like in a private equity fund or something like that, and then let's look at the overall return. And I think private equity returns, for example, weren't that great. Over the you know last ten years, uh, fifteen years, um, yeah, I, I still believe absolutely that the let's say the uh, potential between you know what we need to do and the speed at which we need to do it um, and the speed of the transformation is just let's say widening the gap um, between traditional companies and sustainable companies, so. I think, you know, there's what we're seeing now, sustainability companies being successful. It's going to actually accelerate over the next 10, 20 years.
2: So that's a good trend, I would say, that we are facing here over the next years. Yes. Another challenge that you actually faced was acquiring clients or doing sales, basically. How do you go about that? Because that's usually a huge challenge that you have to face as a startup.
0: First of all, I think that most startups, <laughs> it's natural. Um, startups are built by product people. The product is the center, usually, of a startup. So it, it's all about the product. And it was the same at Carbon Delta. We were in love with our product. And that's usually not the best way to sell. Because you're then internally focused on that externally focused on what the client really needs and it's also sometimes harmful for the sales process I think because if you talk too much about the product and inquire too little about what the client needs you're not going to be a successful salesperson so I always try to motivate good salespeople to join startups because I think that's usually a missing piece of the spectrum, and I also think that most students that come from a university, um, Korea, and then dive right into a startup, they have this expectation that you need a perfect product and then you can sell it. You know, they see buying an iPhone in the Apple store and they think they have to do the same thing, but especially in B2B sales, that's not at all the case. You can actually just have an idea and go to a big corporate and tell them i have the people that can do this would you be interested and you do if you do it in a great way you have a deal and i think that that's almost the hardest thing to teach startups because there's always a tendency to to just go back into the office and to work on the product and that's a huge problem because if you work on the product too long the money's gone and the company's dead.
2: Right. Yep. Unfortunately, that's the case. But luckily, there are also things that were easier than you expected. You mentioned before hiring people. It was one of these things. Why was that so easy for you to hire and find the good people?
0: Um, Zurich uh, is a great place to start a climate company. We have, you know, at ETH, we have environmental engineering, engineering, we we have other um, areas of study that are related to, to the environment. Um, so, you know, you have a lot of young people, they're totally convinced about climate change, and they want to join a climate change company. And still to this day, it's surprising, there aren't that many climate change jobs on the market. So we would put out a job ad, um, and we would receive, you know, well over 100 applications within a week. Wow. So... You can imagine. I mean, this was a, a great job market for, for Carbon Delta.
2: And also the right timing to be in the market and to really you know, support the people that are looking to get active in that field and are looking for a job. I think that's the perfect combination. Then the other thing that was also pretty difficult you mentioned to me was finding investors. How do you go about that and how did you actually find a workaround uh, around that and then were able to convince investors to join?
0: Well, I think um, we were uh, totally determined and focused on getting clients because we felt like with clients, everything else is going to trickle down. And and that was true. We had, you know, great names as clients. And uh, so I didn't focus on raising money very well. So that's why it was difficult to, to raise money. Also, I didn't know that well how to do it. Now, I had a fantastic pitch trainer. So I think my pitch was at least good. Um, and uh, well, we ended up raising through ZikTik, and it was, ZikTik was instrumental in this uh, the funding round. But I think it could have easily gone wrong. And I I didn't have a great network of wealthy people, or I didn't have any good relationships with banks or whatever. And a lot of investors told me they're only interested, you know, starting with companies that make at least a million in revenue. I mean, we were at the time uh, still a factor of ten away from that. So yeah, I think it. it I mean, surprising to me today, it was it was difficult. It's, but you know, Switzerland, Germany, these aren't countries where startup investment is a is a big thing. So you have a very somewhat limited community of people that are interested in investing. We also spent some time in New York looking for investors in New York, and maybe it would have been easier to find inv- investors there. But the big problem was that. Of course, they want to be close to the startups. So they said, are you ready to move to New York? And I was we weren't ready to relocate three, four or five families sure. to the US. And there was no way to get green cards for everybody. I mean, that, that was just a, a non-starter. Yeah.
2: So then Sigtig eventually financed you and was also essential to then leading up to the sale of your company. In that regard, I would also like to talk about supporters and opponents that you faced along the way. So supporters, SIG was one with the investors part. Who else supported you along the journey that made a significant contribution to the success of Carbon Delta?
0: Well, as I said, um, Climate Kick was was instrumental in the success, um, giving us visibility, um, giving us credibility through the, uh, you know, we won the uh, European Startup Award. Um, with climate kick, I mean that was a, a great achievement, um, and I think we just—it's uh, great when you when you start a company and you you interact with people, you find a lot of people that would give you a few hours of their time and uh, and help you. It's it's really great. It's amazing. So, for example, one startup coach. Um, working for the uh, Mass Challenge um, program uh, came by our office and and came by and said uh, that he had also started a company and that he's a big fan of Blue Ocean Strategy and that he thought that Carbon Delta was a great example for Blue Ocean Strategy. And I, I mean, I have to say, I'm also a big fan now of Blue Ocean Strategies and What has helped me psychologically with Carbon Delta was to transition from me thinking we're just crazy building a product where the market doesn't already exist to thinking this actually makes sense. It can be a sensible strategy. And these are the elements why we're doing it. And these are the blue ocean uh, techniques to manage that strategy, so I think it was a fundamental psychological uh, support that I got from that, you know, tip. And the, we never heard from that guy again. He didn't have time uh, uh, to support us further. But that's just one example of people that just come along and, and help you. And then, you know, we had uh, 10, uh, 10 uh, angel investors from SICTIC. They were really helpful. All the time. I mean, I could contact any of them and ask them for help and they would do that. Um, Thomas Dubendorfer, for example, from the SICTIC president, I mean, he helped us all the time with, you know, various issues. Um, We had great lawyers um, that would help us. Uh, ZKB was um, also invested in that investing round. I mean, ZKB has a great team that is extremely supportive. Um, Yeah, it's... You get a lot of help. It's really cool.
2: Fantastic. On the other hand, I can imagine there were also opponents. Um, who comes to mind when you think about opponents that you faced along the journey? I
0: don't. I don't have much of an image of opponents. Maybe I have an image of competitors, mm-hmm. and that's natural. We did try a number of business corporations with some of those uh, competitors, and. I think even with the, you know, best faith, uh, collaboration ideas, to be honest, we would most times fail because that competitive situation would somehow get into the way. So when it comes to exactly signing a contract or limits or revenue shares or whatever, you know, I think, uh, product people oftentimes, you know, think, ah, it's a great idea, you know, I get this from you, uh, I give this, and the combined product is so much better. And and that's a, those are usually great ideas. But when it comes down to the whole business model, how's this going to work? Who's going to bring the client? How's the, the share? How is everything that is brought into the collaboration valued? It becomes very tricky and it oftentimes, it falls apart a little bit.
2: Right. And to what way would you also say that, you know, climate change deniers, or to a certain degree, even the general public, were opponents that you faced?
0: Well, I have more of a feeling of uh, ignorance on that side. I mean, we would have a lot of, The interesting thing was that we... Getting a meeting at any bank, for example, in Switzerland was not a problem. I could practically call up any bank and get a meeting. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing was that we would oftentimes... You know, we were these kind of product people that would talk for about an hour about our product. Listen very little to the client. Um, And uh, in the end, we would realize... You know, the people that we have in front of us don't believe much in climate change. And at points, at times, it was really shocking to me. You know, sea level people at banks in, in, in Germany or Switzerland would then frequently, you know, say things like, well, I re- you know, you can have different views on climate change. I read an article by a professor in Geneva or something and then, you know, quote some, you know, obscure thing about climate change or, you know, would jokingly say, you know, can you, uh, you know, the only thing I'm really interested in is, you know, could you tell me about my property that I have in Northern Germany, whether it's, you know, uh, threatened by flood? I was like thinking you know i I understand the the concern that you have about your private assets, but shouldn't you be more concerned about the assets that you manage um and you know think about that risk? you know that's just like you know a million times larger so uh, yeah, I was I was sometimes quite shocked about the ignorance towards climate change, and I think that's changed a little bit with the paris agreement and and mostly with the Fridays for Future movement. I did sense a complete different reaction to Fridays for Future than any, like, you know, article or IPCC report or whatever. You know, uh, a young person sitting at the dinner table saying, I'm not going to school tomorrow. That just, I think, hits a lot of parents so differently on such a differently emotional level. Um, And... You know, these kids are right. Um, uh, climate change is probably the, the biggest generational injustice ever on planet Earth. So, you know, they're absolutely right in, in voicing their concern.
2: Absolutely. Now let's get back to the journey. In 2019, just four years after you actually founded Carbon Delta, and we also talked about MSCI, you actually sold Carbon Delta to that MSCI the American competitor can you walk us through how the deal actually happened
0: we um <laughs> in the end the the, the finance sustainability a community is is not that large it's a couple thousand people in Europe and there are a number of events that everybody goes to and we would go there and you know at some point Carbon Delta was able to afford a stand and actually you know we were really proud we we had a, a backdrop printed at some point and of course MSCI was also at these events so we started to get to know all of our competitors and the people that work there and of course there are you know beers at the bar um in the evening and and we would talk talk to these people and about a a year and a half before the acquisition um we started to get the sentiment from the salespeople at MSCI that they were very uh, frustrated. That MSCI um, was uh, getting uh, messages from some of their clients saying, uh, "No climate change. We didn't. We don't need to talk about climate change because we're already working with a company from Switzerland." <laughs> and they weren't used to that you know they were thinking uh you know being sort of the market dominator in the in the uh esg space they were thinking that's that's strange and i think essentially that that triggered a process at at msci and the first thing um uh, we had planned was a joint product so um We, you know, MSCI would send us data, we would do some computations, we would send it back to MSCI and they would sell it as the MSCI climate value at risk. Mm -hmm. And that was a great idea. And we were really excited. And then we were approached by a a big brand name in the UK, uh, very aggressively, saying we want to buy you. We uh, investigated the uh, climate change space. We think you're, you're the number one. We want to buy you. And we were very flattered by this uh, big brand name and started this discussion. And in the end felt like we have to tell MSCI uh, because we were planning this collaborative product, um, that, that this is, you know, sort of in the thinking mm-hmm. and that's where the whole process started. And, you know, people understood more broadly. Some people, I think that we might be willing to sell and, uh, MCI then got very engaged and became very interested, and it was also interesting um, because we then realized that MCI was, you know, on so many levels a better buyer and a better future for Carbon Delta than this other brand name, um, and and that goes back to maybe a, a business practice that that I think is is very high level but important. If if you want to make decisions in life, I think you need to consider alternatives. If you're just considering one option, yes or no, the answer is mostly yes because you don't want to miss out on an opportunity. It's, it's natural. Right. But if you have a second option, you might think that first option isn't that great. And it, it was the same when, when selling Carbon Delta and um, MSCI didn't only buy us for our product, but I think they also bought us for our programming expertise. Um, they bought us for some of the business practices we uh, we had, and they just bought us because we were a, a running team. And so, that I think there were, you know, a couple of of aspects that were appealing to MCI.
2: For how much did you actually sell the company for?
0: the The acquisition value is not disclosed. Uh, that's part of the uh, the agreement, but. I think uh, the best formulation is that uh, our angel investors were very satisfied with the deal.
2: Okay. So they made a good return on the, I think in in Crunchbase, it said you raised about 1.7 million in total from your angel investors. So that gives people sort of an understanding about the potential multiples there. Now, we also wonder what is next for you, Oliver? Now you sold your company. What do you tackle next
0: well, climate change still is number one for me, and the work I can do at MSCI for me um, seems like my very best way to leverage uh, my my capabilities to uh, for a systemic uh, transformation of the finance industry in its in its own interest, you know, and so. I, I see my future at, at MCI
2: so there are no plans for a new startup yet
0: so uh, I didn't do any sports as a as a kid, but I did get into triathlon um, about twenty years ago and uh, so I think there are these things in life where um, you know it's it's like a marathon for example, or uh, or maybe you know women having children um, where, you know, after the event you're like, I'm never ever going to do this again and uh, maybe after a few months or years or whatever you start thinking about it again because you you forget about the pain Right. and, uh, you know uh, after the acquisition you know, I would tell people never ever again you know, I'm just so happy this is in a safe haven and maybe sometime again, I don't know, but I'm, since I'm not making any concrete plans because my job at MCI is so, you know, let's say, uh, you know, filled out with, you know, my, my, my mental capacity is just used up with, you know, my, my work at MCI right now. So if you, you, if you don't have this kind of creative thinking around starting new companies, that that's then not something that comes to mind.
2: Fair point. We always wrap up these whisperer episodes with two last parts. The first one is about personal resources and gadgets. What comes to mind about you know books, blogs, podcasts, gadgets that you use yourself on a regular basis that you can recommend to our listeners?
0: Um a friend of mine gave me a <clears throat> a set of cards. Um, They're called strategy cards. And they're kind of strange. They never really... I mean, they just have graphs on there. Um, They're sometimes just two words. um, Sometimes just one word. Sometimes an image. And they're immensely helpful. It's so interesting. So when I think about a business problem, I just flip through these cards... And these cards give me inspiration to think about something else. It's just a great way to... It's like design thinking, you know? These are techniques to get your mind off of your normal track. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great tool. It's called strategy cards. You can actually make them yourselves. Okay,
2: you would also find that if you Google it? it Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think so. Okay.
0: I can look it up for you, and then maybe you can put it in. Sure, we will something. put that in the in the show notes. Uh, yeah. I love
2: the recommendation because that's something we haven't heard on the show yet. Yeah, yeah. And the last part are some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you a short question or a selection where you make one choice. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. The first one is lakes or mountains. Uh, lakes. Why? Triathlon. Fair point. Yep. Where do you actually go to think
0: the best thinking I can do when I go jogging? Absolutely. There's a certain so I think I'm this type of person I can't really sit down and and relax and think very well to be honest. I'm in working mode. So working mode means processing emails, talking to people, reviewing documents. That's, you know, that's like my 90% Uh, of my work looks like that and that doesn't give you the opportunity to to relax and think and jogging that's the beauty of exercise your mind just has to shut off it's it's a natural process a lot of people when they do um, uh, swimming they're surprised that they can't count the laps a lot of people think it's a um, concentration deficiency but it's actually just the exercise that shuts your brain off. That's what it is.
2: Nice. The next choice, Switzerland or Germany? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a very hard choice. I, I,
0: actually, to be honest, I've been here for over 20 years. I, I go with Switzerland. Yeah.
2: Cool. What makes you smile?
0: I mean, I like, uh, you know, Helge Schneider type of comedy. This, is, this just cracks me up. Yeah. Awesome.
2: And the last one for you today, plane or car? Bike. Perfect. I knew that this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oliver, thank you so much for your time and for sharing the impressive journey of Carbon Delta. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank and you, Ziva. We wish you all the best for the future and lots of success with whatever you will be tackling in the future.
0: Okay. Thanks for your podcast.
1: Now that you've finished listening to the episode, why not top it off with a quick rating on Apple Podcasts? It's one of the best things you can do to help us reach more entrepreneurs just like you.